This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Babylon was a long journey for its filmmaker Damien Chazelle and producer Matthew Pluff. They're here today on Crew Call to tell us about it. Let's go back to Focus Features. Matt, you knew about this project very, very early on. Tell me about, tell me about the, you know, when Damien started talking about this to you. Uh, it goes way back um, to 2009. I had seen uh, Damien's first, I now call it his forgotten film, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench which is his actual first feature uh, at Tribeca in 2009. And I was a very young executive uh, and I loved it and saw something brilliant and exciting. And I called him and said, I wanted to meet him. And um, we met and I don't think I'll ever forget that meeting. We talked a lot about a, a number of projects that he was excited about, um, including a musical, which uh, ended up becoming La La Land. But even before that, he talked about wanting to make a movie during this time um, in Hollywood history during the transition um, to sound that captured what that time was really like and sort of the unhinged, insane, brilliant, wild people that uh, started the industry that we're all a part of. And so we talked about it and to be honest, at that time, it just seemed like the biggest movie ever made and something that would take uh, a whole career to even be talking about. But we just sort of never stopped talking about it over the course of a decade. And then we made it. Damien, I heard the early version of this script had the actual names of the people that you wanted to base it on. Is that true? For some of the characters, yeah, there was a few. I mean, the 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 script was kind of still a work in progress when I when I uh, you know w when we started trying to kind of get you know either certain cast or financing elements onto it. And so I think uh, um, sometimes character names come to me very easily, and sometimes it's it's a total slog. And so I think there were a few of the characters, maybe you know two or three of them of the main characters, where. Um, I was just so used to thinking them as their counterparts, you know, I think, I think, um, uh, you know, like, like a John Gilbert or someone where I just, uh, uh, or, or anime Wong instead of, um, uh, Lady Feiju. So, you know, th th there's, uh, even in cases where the characters were composites of multiple people, it would sort of, you know, sometimes I would just kind of have in my mind initially as I was writing, just to have something started to write with. So I don't get bogged down in first names and last names for a month before writing scenes. Um, I would just kind of grab the, the 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 person who felt the closest. You know, it's almost like the equivalent of writing for an actor. In this case, it was writing for real historical people that I knew were going to be at least partly kind of the, the inspiration for the voice behind that character. So I think that's how some versions of the script wound up floating around that had 
um, where some people thought, oh, this is literally, you know, going to be the anime Wong story or the John Gilbert story or whatnot. When did it become a story about disruption for you? Was it always that from the onset? Yeah, I think that's how it started right uh, right at the beginning was was um, was that specific disruption of sound, you know, uh, coming in, but more specifically, even just the the calamity that that sort of wound up representing to to a whole way of life and certainly a whole host of people on the ground at that time. Um, I want to be I remember being shocked just reading kind of early, you know, just early sort of bits of um, research I'd be reading about, you know, uh, people uh, sort of rashes of suicides, the sort of uptick in suicides among kind of, you know, both stars and bit players in Hollywood and people's lives ruined in ways that felt not just figurative, but physical and literal. Um, so it suddenly, it felt to me like uh, there's there's a kind of disaster movie sort of uh, darkness to this that hasn't really, we kind of know the the fun and games version of it in, in some way, but the the idea of kind of trying to do the the dark underbelly version of that story of that disruption, I guess it was sort of Hollywood's first disruption, if you will, um, uh, felt really uh, interesting to me. Because of the transition from silent to sound. Yeah. Um, indulge us. Anyone that ever made the transition successfully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gary Cooper is an example of someone who was, who, who found stardom in the silent era and, um, um, he had a speaking style and a, and a way of being that totally translated. Joan Crawford is another, you know, example. So certainly, you know, for all your Claire Bow and John Gilberts and, um, you know, Carl Danes and, you know, Antonio Moreno's stuff, there, there were a host of um, of people who did uh, who, who, who did make it through. But it still was the biggest, ultimately the biggest tectonic plate shift sea change that Hollywood has ever seen, both in terms of kind of cutting cutting short the careers of so many people who the industry had depended on just, you know, a year before. And in terms of bringing in a whole host of um, new stars so that, you know, most of the people you think of as your iconic old Hollywood stars of like the thirties and onward were really not stars in the silent era, but were brought in. They were brought in in many cases as part of this kind of uh, migration of New York from New York based theater to Hollywood. That's where you get the James Cagneys, the Humphrey Bogarts, the Catherine Hepburns, the Paul Mooney's. It's all theater people uh, uh, in the on the East Coast being brought over to uh, L.A. to, you know, show the actors there how to talk, um, basically. And so it's a totally different kind of language winds up being created from it and, and from there a, a different kind of star system that I think is separate ultimately from the silent era star system. You know, I, I know a number of studios that read this project but it wound up at Paramount. Can you talk about Paramount's embrace of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Matt, Matt could probably speak to this too. The the um, um, Paramount, I think Paramount was sort of one of the only ones to 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 embrace it, um, and uh, we're very thankful that that uh, that they did. At, at the time, there. Um, uh, Wick Godfrey, uh, uh, who who I had gotten to know through making First Man with him right before he went to to uh, uh, to start working at Paramount, um, you know, uh, uh, Matt and I and, and the two other producers, Mark Platt and Olivia Hamilton, we all sort of um, kind of felt like he'd be one of the best sort of people to give the script to first and just see if maybe he could be a champion. And, and um, 
luckily, luckily for us, he responded to it and he became that champion. And I think he sort of fought very hard to, um, to, uh, to sort of shepherd the movie into, into the studio. So I'm not sure without him, I can't know for sure, but I, I, I'm not that confident that it would even have been a Paramount movie without him, but he got us into the door. We were very lucky. Uh, we were just about to start prep when COVID hit uh, in March, 2020. So we shut down our production offices, literally the week we had opened them, uh, then just had to kind of sit and wait for a year, um, you know, with lots of kind of sliding casting, sliding scheduling, you know, and, and also regime changes at Paramount. So it was, every day was a little bit of a, are we still alive? Are we not? Um, until we finally started shooting for real this time uh, a, a year later. You started shooting in September of 2021? Uh, July 2021. Okay. I live up here in Santa Clarita, a stone's uh, throw away from William S. Hart's yeah. mansion. Um, but you got, you know, uh, tell the listeners why it was really special to shoot up here. I mean, I will lean in and I will say this. If you watch the end shot of modern times, mm -hmm. that blew me away. That freaked me out. I was like, I know that mountainscape that's right near me. So the thing is they've been shooting silent films up here. It wasn't just Herbie, the love bug and 24 yeah. and CSI <laughs> that they've been shooting up here. They've been shooting silent films going way back. Um, and tell, tell me about why it was special to shoot here. It's like Holy ground. It felt like that to us. It was, it was, it was, um, I remember, I think initially we, you know, we started, so this would be back in maybe 2019. We first started kind of scouting. I remember it was, it was our production designer, me, Matt and Olivia just got in the car and started scouting. And it was a little bit like, we don't know where we're going. We're just going to kind of see what we find. And, uh, you know, it wound up taking us very far from, or, you know, very far, but outside of the sort of normal center of LA and, you know, the sort of today's hubbub. Um, and you start to go out to places, whether it's Santa Clarita or Piru or Fillmore or places where you start to kind of, you can actually start to see those landscapes that, that, that you suddenly, you know, something about it feels familiar. Something about that hill line feels like a Chaplin film or a Buster Keaton film or a Harold Lloyd film or a Laurel and Hardy piece. And, and you start to kind of, piece it together. Um, and also, I think ultimately what it is, is we were trying to go out to places where you could still feel a little bit of the countryside, where you still felt a little bit of LA before it became completely urbanized and congested and metropolitan. Back when you still had orange groves and you still had this weird juxtaposition of, you know, big construction, uh, big human footprint and nothing, just, you know, dirt pastures or just, you know, uh, empty valleys and dirt roads. And you just have that juxtaposition. Um, where you feel, okay, this is a city that isn't fully formed yet. It's in the process. It's in its birthing pains. And that's what the movie had to capture. I'm just going to say there was also this desire to bring to life this world practically, which was so important to Damien and to, to all of us. Um, you know, we live in an age where a lot of these movies, even movies, you know, that take place in the 20s are all shot on green screen. And one of the things, just going back to Paramount for a second, they saw Damien's vision to make this movie practically from the very beginning and were so supportive of that. And philosophically, there's something sort of um, essential to us about making this movie the way that movies were made in the 20s, in the places 
where they made films and not faking that. And to be in Los Angeles, as you can imagine, as a production, we had all sorts of conversations about um, maybe not shooting the movie in Los Angeles for all sorts of reasons, tax credits and, and all of that. But we felt sort of a responsibility, a, a, more than a desire. There was something almost like spiritual about making the movie here where these great filmmakers made their films. So the search was on and 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 in a way that really galvanized everybody and, and the whole crew to know that we were going to be doing this uh, almost in sort of a, a spiritual manner where it began all practically. That's so rare now and so exciting that um, it just became sort of a beautiful part of the process. And then Toby McGuire, can you tell me about, it's a very interesting, you know, yes, he was in Spider-Man No Way Home. But we haven't seen him in the, you know, in front of the camera for a while. And he was an executive producer on the project. Can you tell me how that came to be? And tell me more about his character, especially in regards to Clara Bow and Margot Robbie and how that translated to Margot Robbie's character. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, why, why don't you take uh, Toby sort of came through Matt initially. Yeah, Toby, I, I, you know, after I, after I met Damien in 2009, I um, left Focus and started producing with Toby. Um, and while my relationship with Damien sort of continued, you know, Toby was a huge fan of, of Damien's work and we all became friends. And um, when we started talking about Babylon, Toby was sort of always involved, even though um, it had sort of predated my relationship with him. But uh, I'll let Toby speak for himself, but who who doesn't want to work with Damien? And I think he was uh, just excited to be a part of the project. Um, and Damien, you can talk about the character and its its origins if you want. Yeah, because because I think that was the thing is like Toby initially was more that behind behind like a, more in a producing capacity, um, you know, executive producing capacity. Then it's not like a, I, I didn't write a role for him in in the in the script or anything like that. Um, I think. I remember it was this very organic thing where we would start doing read throughs when we had um, drafts of the script, we'd start doing read throughs often at, at Toby's house or the sort of the offices. And it would be me, Matt, Mark, Olivia, um, sometimes Francine Maisler, our casting director, sometimes friends we could kind of rally uh, to the cause and Toby would always be there. And obviously Toby being Toby, we'd always give him like four roles to do. You know, he, he always had to do a lot of anything that felt juicy. We had to just throw to Toby. And I remember at, one, at some point, one of those roles, you know, must have been um, the role he wound up playing because it, it was that kind of thing where I would just be sitting there and read through was just cracking up at, at his performance of some of these lines. And, and, and actually there were a few other roles too that he did so, um, so brilliantly that where I actually kind of, after some of these read-throughs, I sort of had in my mind, well, we've got to get him into the movie in some way because any of these roles will show a side of him that no one's seen before. I'm not sure which role is the best for him. And that became a conversation with him of like, what you know, these are the few roles I'm thinking of where you could actually really do something special. Which one of these appeals to you the most? And of course, Toby went for the sickest, most depraved, you know, creepiest of all the roles. And uh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but that guy was a real guy that, that, no, I mean, well, you know, no, I mean, no, definitely like everyone in the movie or most people in the movie fictional, um, you know, there were, there were, he, he's, he, he's, he's got 
you know, based on a mix of people. I was really inspired by, um, for instance, you know, uh, I was inspired. Clara Bow had a, a kind of famous or sort of uh, some people say apocryphal, but incident in a casino with a casino owner who who did threaten to use acid to disfigure her because she, you know, owed money and didn't, uh, you know, she claimed she didn't know what kind of currency they were using. It was a whole thing um, that she sort of wound up getting her way out of. But we imagined in the movie, in Nellie's case, in Margot's case, well, what if she didn't get out of it? You know, what uh, what if they did actually just try to track her down? Um, so kind of who that guy, who that casino owner would have been. Cal Neva was this interesting little pocket at the time where gambling had been outlawed in L.A. And so a lot of the old gamblers and gambling kind of um, uh, people running gambling dens migrated to Cal Neva, this little uh, tract of land between California and Nevada. This is pre-Las Vegas, you know, so it's that became this little kind of Vegas before Vegas and really sketchy and shady and sort of a no man's land for police and all that stuff. Um you know, I, I, and then there was also a little bit, and I, I don't think of Toby's character really as a mobster per se, but he definitely has his fingers in those pots. And this was a time in the early 30s where the mob was starting to kind of, again, they didn't have Vegas yet. They're starting to try to seek out where their West Coast place of operations might be. Lucky Luciano was rumored to have been involved in the murder of Thelma Todd, who was a kind of a actress of the period, who was also a little bit of an inspiration for Margot's character. Um and then finally, this ridiculous place that that Toby's character takes them to was modeled, in that case, on a club in Paris at the time, a 20s club in Paris, where people would sort of get together and watch a guy eat a rat. So so all of that was kind of, um, so it was a mix of places and people that wound up feeding into this character that ultimately Toby, you know, just made his own, ultimately. That was an amazing scene. That was a great detour <laughs> and a great, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was more than a place where you could see someone eating a rat. It was, it was like, I mean, it was like a haunted house underground. Yeah. <laughs> um, trip, trip inside that character's mind and yeah, you don't want to go back there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Next part. This more will come in. She's taking prostitution back in the day, so when you see her, you cry in shame. I need big tears. Big. You got it? Is that gum? You know, this reminded me a lot of an Altman, uh, of a Robert Altman film. Hmm. I know you you watched a number of films to draw inspiration, but for me, Altman weighed heavy on my mind. Hmm. I'm 
Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we uh, we definitely early on, I think, screened Nashville, um, you know, which we, we we both knew, but just needed to kind of reacquaint ourselves with on the big screen. Um, I remember talking a lot with Linus about how Vilma Sigmund shot uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, you know, and, and the long goodbye. Uh, also, just the the well, the long goodbye is a great example too with the the California light. There's so few films that to me really capture what L.A. light can feel like. And that way it has a blowing everything out kind of uh, so that you're almost you always feel like you're kind of trying to escape it. Um, the Long Goodbye is one of those that I think really, um, you know, does that. Um, you know, obviously the player was was a fun one to kind of talk about as well. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Altman is sort of he's definitely one of the titans, I think, for both me and Matt and and uh, and 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 all of us, um, you know. Um, yeah, for sure. But this is the way it was out in the desert, multiple films being shot. It was just complete cacophony. The orchestra's playing, someone's losing a limb, <laughs> Keystone Cops. This yeah. is and and it was all up here in 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 Santa in, in Santa Clarita for the most part. Yeah, it was it was it was um I, I I think it has to do a little bit with again, sort of just just what you happened to mention the the in the desert aspect. To me, actually, wound up being becoming even more important to us than I think we initially expected, because today you can forget that L.A. is a desert town. I think back in those days it was harder for, to forget. Obviously, you get a feeling of that in Chinatown, which is in the '30s. You know, it's a little bit later, but you, you know that's very much about L.A. being this desert town. In the 20s, you could feel that even more. And so the idea of like the irrationality in some ways of building a city there, of building an industry there, of, of doing anything there, you know, um, it speaks to a kind of madness, a kind of all-American sort of idealism mixed with hubris, mixed with delusion that just winds up uh, creating something faster than, you know, that, 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 that there's something in the air that make, made movies take off faster than any art form previously and made LA take off as a city faster than any, the growth of any city previously. There was something unprecedented about it. So trying to capture that kind of madness of people who are drawn to the desert to pitch a tent and put on a show and work their, work their heads off and then party their heads off and they're on drugs and they're just doing it day after day after day, shooting 10 movies a month, just churning them out. And some of these movies are masterpieces. It's just, uh, it's again, there's a kind of insanity to the whole enterprise that felt like that hadn't been fully done justice to. Which I would For say is like also so present today. You just said that the, this is in some ways about the origins of rationality of making movies, period. Making movies to this day, certainly this movie, which I describe all the time as simply impossible. Movies, making a movie is a miracle. Making, another, making a good movie is a miracle on a miracle. Then releasing it, having it be you know embraced. Movies are honestly, most of the time, an irrational enterprise. And there's something about this time, which it, it felt like we were sort of doing the origin story of that irrationality and sort of digging into why these people fell in love with this process the way they did. Um, that takes us all the way through to today. Like To be frank, why all of us who made this movie went through the process of making this impossible movie. It was so difficult. And the, the frank reality is that it is not, it's not just beautiful. 
it, within the irrationality is the impossible, the painful, the ecstatic. Making movies is sort of everything. And what Damien, I think, really uncovered and articulates so be- articulated so beautifully in the script, and I think does in the movie, is all of that, is sort of the everything of that. And it's the only way for me to be honest and truthful about what it is to make movies. It is sort of everything. And these are the people that first did it. And so something about that that I find like inexplicably beautiful and was sort of a responsibility to sort of capture that spirit. This land of disruption that we currently live in, theatrical versus streaming, streaming, gobbling up more and more original movies. Are you concerned about this or no way, no day over your dead body? The big screen will always live on. Like, like, are you concerned as filmmakers that it's harder to make original films for the big screen or no? No one's checked out of that. There's still, there's still believers in the town. We never talk about this ever. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think what Matt means is this is, yeah, we talk about it ad nauseum in these long circular conversations that become rants. Um, I think uh, to put it all more succinctly, I mean, I guess both sides of what you said are true. I think that, yes, there are still believers and it's still possible. And I still remain an optimist. And I think the big screen will live forever and needs to live forever. And and uh, no matter what any of us do, we'll live forever. Like, I, mean, I, I just think there's something primal in it that, um, um, you know, uh, if 100 years in a Great Depression, two world wars and two pandemics didn't kill it, then nothing will. I kind of feel like so the, the uh, I could be wrong. But, um, uh, you know, but we've been through every decade has its death of cinema obituaries written. It's either radio or it's TV or it's the VHS or it's DVDs or it's now, now it's streaming. So in that sense, streaming isn't anything new, um, uh, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, I think that um, but I definitely would be lying if I said, oh, yeah, it's easy to to kind of make uh, original movies for the big screen um, today of, of, of any kind, you know, and, and I wish it were easier. So. I think there is a fight to to be fought. There is something to struggle for, you know. Um, um, it's not, um, I don't think you can just sort of count on a theatrical release the way maybe you could at a certain point back in the day. I'm not sure to what extent that ever really was true. Um, uh, you know, I think it's it kind of behooves us as filmmakers to try to treat that as a, you know, as a, challenge and not just you know as a challenge to inspire us to better work and not just a kind of hurdle that we sort of crumple from and and uh you know kind of uh whine about so uh, you know it, it's um um i don't know matt you can uh, you can take the baton but uh, uh, sure i mean <clears throat> I, I remain an optimist in general but uh but there is work to be done it's hard to follow Damien. He is, was typically unbelievably articulate there. I'll, I'll be really short and say, I think the debate becomes an either or debate, big screen or streaming, when in fact, in reality, it's a yes and debate. There will be the big screen and there will be streaming and that's okay. I think what is important to me um, is that the big screen is something that we all still get to strive for and 
that young filmmakers are ambitious enough to um, grab and go for and things, as Damien said, it's just not a given anymore. That's sort of exciting. That's an opportunity. It's now a time where if you want your movie to play on the big screen, you have to go grab it. You have to demand it. And frankly, I think that's going to be um, exciting. I think uh, I think if filmmakers embrace that and go, well, what is going to bring people to the big screen and how can I go grab that audience? That's only, I hope that only inspires them and inspires me. It inspired us when we were making this movie. Um, and And I would say that sort of ecstatic big screen experience is very young. The medium is only 100 years old. We talk about this all the time. To be really short and blunt, we're just getting started. There's so much further to go. So to me, it's just, it's part of this, it's part of the cycle. And everyone loves to point fingers and blame streaming. And I think streaming will be around. It's great. But that doesn't mean the big screen's going away. And I think there's an opportunity for filmmakers to go and um, uh, go make more great things for the big screen. Damien, I think you are Vincenti Minnelli, and I want to know when the next original musical is. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The, 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 um, I, 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 um, I go back and forth between sort of, uh, you know, never again and, uh, oh, yeah, maybe that should no. be. Uh, maybe no. maybe that again, 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 again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, you did it. You did it so well. Um, well, Matt's the one who uh, suggested to me one day, you know, why don't you do a musical set in L.A.? I think I, I kept sending Matt musical scripts when he was at Focus and he sort of finally sort of said, no, I don't want to read. I don't want this musical in Newark. I don't want this musical in Boston. Why don't you try one in L.A.? And, hmm. and that sort of led to La La Land. So we'll see what the next uh, we'll see what the next uh, uh, inspiration is. No matter what, though, I will say that the the idea of doing cinema that i would consider musical in its in its form in its dna you know uh working with justin herwitz uh, uh uh alongside him um you know kind of trying to incorporate that sort of language into it i'm a musician myself or at least was or wanted to be uh and uh i think that that aspect no matter what kind of subject matter i take on is never that's never going to go away um but the musical genre itself yeah we'll see we'll see excellent thank you both Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for having Take me. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.